0: There's an urban legend in church history that begins with Luke 10. We don't have enough surviving literature to verify whether or not it's true, but I'm going to tell you the story that has been handed down to us through tradition. There isn't a need to do so now, but if you were to turn your Bibles to Luke 10, you'd find a story about Jesus commissioning either 70 or 72 uh, disciples. Depending on how your translators decided that they wanted to render or understand the Greek there. According to a few writings of questionable reliability, among these 70 or 72 is a man named Philologus, who is reported to have become a bishop near the Black Sea. A few decades after Paul writes the letter that we are looking at today, Philologus has a son, and at this point, the history becomes a little bit clearer. His son, named Marcion, grows up to be a wealthy ship owner, traveling all over the ancient world. While traveling to Rome sometime around the late 130s, he gives 200 sesterces to the church there. Now, it's basically impossible to convert Roman money to U.S. dollars, and so uh, the best way to get a judge of how much money this is is to compare, like, how much did 200 sesterces get you if you were to buy something, Right? So that is roughly the amount of money as a salary of the second highest ranking military official in Rome. Uh, It was the cost of a fair-sized home, if you were to buy one in the city, or it was the price of a mid-sized plot of above-average farmland in Rome. So in other words, Marcion donated a fairly significant sum of money to the church in Rome. We don't know how or why the controversy unfolded. But we do know for sure that he began promoting some kinds of false teachings. And in July of 144, he disfellowshipped himself from the church at Rome and took his financial gift with him whenever he left. Having enough money to buy social power and influence, it sparks arguably the most significant heretical movement of the second century. The apologist Justin Martyr tells us that this false teaching, which has been called Marcionism, progressed to all of the provinces in Rome by the 150s. That's only 10 years after Marcion removed himself from the church. Tertullian of Carthage tells us that eventually Marcion's heretical tradition filled the whole world. Now, we are talking about a Greco-Roman writer, so the whole world probably just meant the entire ancient world, right? But still, it's impressive. Only a couple decades, and it's reached the entirety of civilization as he knows it. There's certainly enough evidence to call Marcion undoubtedly the most notorious figure from the second century, as one scholar has said it. Now, the reason I tell you this story is because I think it's a great reminder of how quickly false teaching can spread. If our ancient sources are correct, it only took 10 years for Marcion to infect all of Rome and a few decades to reach the entirety of the world. Paul, too, was no stranger to false teachings infiltrating the church. He wasn't combating Marcionism because it hasn't happened yet, but the first chapter of 1 Timothy tells us that Paul was writing to Timothy because something was theologically rotten in the city of Ephesus. Scholars and commentators disagree about what these false teachings were. Personally, I think there's a lot of evidence to think that they came from a highly Jewish background and that they were the seeds of what would later be known to the church as the heresy of Gnosticism. There's a lot of overlap with later Gnostic teachings. The Gnostics were obsessed with genealogies and myths. Uh, Paul concludes the letter condemning false gnosis, which is where we get the word Gnostic. So I think there's some little signals that we might be heading in that direction. But no matter what specific teachings we think they were, it's clear that Paul writes with these false teachers in mind. As he says in three, I urge you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. In fact, if you'll remember what we've covered up to this point, he actually tells uh, Timothy how they have become false teachers. They turned away from love that comes from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. They preferred to have these fruitless discussions about genealogies and myths and speculations, and having seen this, Paul is writing to remind Timothy of his calling to protect the church. But as a result, he kind of gives us a guidebook on how to avoid becoming a heretic. So that's why I have appropriately titled my sermon, How to Avoid Becoming a Heretic. This is the definitive thing. If you ever have anyone who, uh, who propagates a false teaching in your life, you should just link them to the YouTube video and tell them, here's three easy ways to not become a heretic. Please don't do that. I'm just kidding. Um, Although we probably don't have the amount of money that Marcion did to just, like, start our own church plant of false teachings, and we don't probably, I hope, have a weird obsession with, like, myths and genealogies like they would have back then, I do think it is worth considering the fact that we can all easily find ourselves caught up in false teaching. So I think if we take the time to talk through this passage together, we see that Paul is doing more than giving Timothy specific instructions about what to do in Ephesus. He's actually giving us practical advice, spiritual disciplines, things we can do to avoid falling into false doctrine. There are three easy steps that Paul gives us in these seven verses, and I've tried to make them easy to remember. First, the first step Paul gives us to avoid becoming a heretic can be found in verses 1 through 4, and it's to embrace a quiet life of prayer. The second that Paul gives us is verses 5 and 6. And I've called this, let Jesus do the talking. And I'll explain what I mean by that once we get to that section. And then the third step Paul gives us to avoid becoming a heretic is to remember evangelism. Now, you might hear these and think they are fundamental postures of the Christian faith, uh, and I agree, but I think if we get them right, uh, we are much more likely to avoid falling into false teachings and will instead allow the truth of Christ to anchor our hearts. So if you'll pray with me, um, I'm just going to pray for our time together, and then we will jump straight into the text. Sound good? Cool. All right, pray. God, uh, you are infinitely... Good, merciful, kind to us. Uh, I thank you that you did not uh, choose to reveal yourself to a select few of group of people, that you did not uh, choose some sort of speculation or myth or genealogy to reveal yourself, but you actually chose your son. You sent your son to take on our likeness, to speak our language, so to speak, so that we could know you. Jesus says that those who have seen him have seen the Father. And we thank you for that, that you have made yourself known to us in such an accessible way. Thank you for handing down this truth through your apostles, that the Spirit illumines our hearts as we read your inspired word. And I pray that this instruction would take root and that we would treasure you above all else. It's in your Son's name I pray, amen. So, let's read through Paul's guide to avoiding becoming a heretic. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Some preachers and writers have taken the fact that Paul lists four different words for prayer as some kind of prescription for us, that there's four kinds of prayers and that in order to cover all our bases, we need to do them, right? We need to petition, we need to intercede, we need to express gratitude or thankfulness. But I think if we read the verse this way, it's actually missing the flow of Paul's argument and the larger theme. Another thing people notice about this text is that Paul explicitly mentions kings and authorities, as those in need of our prayers. It's not the first time he says something like this. You probably have some alarm bells going off that it sounds like Romans 13, where Paul shows that the rulers of the world have been put in place by God as authorities, with authority granted by God. However, in the context of 1 Timothy and Ephesus, I think it's really serving more as a parenthetical thought. Unlike how you may hear this text quoted... It's not primarily about the four types of prayer, or it's not about having a good relationship with your authorities. Instead, this text is telling us that the most urgent need in the Ephesian situation that we've seen in chapter 1 is their need to pray. The first thing that stands out to me is that these first four verses are beginning this motif of inclusion throughout the entirety of the passage, right? As we will see sort of unfold, Paul says that we should pray for all, Because Jesus died for all, and thus the mission of the gospel seeks to reach all. It is clear that either the false teachers gaining traction in Ephesus were trying to prevent people from hearing the gospel, or they were refusing to pray for them, or perhaps they only believed certain kinds of people deserved to be prayed for. But whatever it was, Paul saw it as a primary issue. And though many of our translation render these first few words As the phrase, first of all, as if he's giving us a list of things to do in order, it's probably more likely that we should understand it to mean that of first importance. What he is saying is the first above all, rather. Ephesus was in dire need of all kinds of prayers offered for all kinds of people. So if we really wanted to capture the sense of what he has given us here, we could rewrite the sentence to say something like this. Pray for all people, including the secular rulers and kings, so that you may lead a tranquil life. And in fact, if we were to go back to grammar school and we were to diagram this sentence, we would see that the primary emphasis really is about uh, existing to please God and live a quiet life, not about existing at peace with our authorities. And that's what I want to draw our attention to. Paul's emphasis is not on the mere act of prayer itself, But it's on prayer as a means to godly and righteous living. I'm going to read the verses again, but this time I'm going to emphasize what I see as sort of the cause and effect kind of feel that Paul puts throughout it. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We see something similar happen in chapter 1, when Paul says that false teaching began to emerge because some had departed from these, is what he says. And by these, he means uh, good conscience, uh, pure faith, I can't remember the third one off the top of my head, I'm so sorry. This is what happens when I stray from, from what I've written, right? Um, so Paul says that they have departed from living a certain way, and because they have departed from that, they have fallen into fruitless, false teachings. In Paul's eyes, how someone lives dictates how they believe, and similarly, how someone prays can dictate how they live. For Paul, regular prayer for all people results in a quiet and peaceful life that is pleasing to God. God. This is why Paul charges Timothy to pray, not just because it keeps the peace within his social setting, but because it demonstrates his godliness by offering a life pleasing to God. This challenges me, and I hope it challenges you, too. Above all else, whenever we are faced with difficult circumstances, the most effective thing we can do is pray so that the rest of our life is fueled to act out of godliness and dignity. It feels somewhat counterintuitive, especially whenever we live in a culture that is fixated on productivity. We want to squeeze the most that we can out of every single day. After all, Paul is talking about false teachers invading the church, right? We've seen how quickly and how dire that is. Don't you think Paul should have told Timothy to get up and do something to put them in their place? That would be my temptation. I would want to go and cut them down to size to withhold my love for them or to shut them out of the church altogether. But instead, Paul seems to be telling Timothy, you need to get out of the way of people knowing Christ. And the easiest way that you can get out of the way is to fervently pray for them. This reminds me of a short essay from C.S. Lewis on the relationship between work and prayer. In it, Lewis talks about this tension that we have all probably thought about before. It often feels like our prayers could be answered a lot more quickly if we could just take matters into our own hands, right? We know exactly what we want done. Why don't we just go do it? Lewis uses the example of farming. At the beginning of the season, a farmer doesn't know whether or not he is going to have a good harvest. But he can be certain that if he goes into the field and he pulls up one weed that that one weed will no longer be there, right? And in this way, the farmer has a certain kind of control over the outcome. He's guaranteed either something will certainly happen if he works hard, or it will certainly not happen if he's lazy. Lewis goes on to point out that prayer is distinct from our work because it gives God ultimate control over the outcome. If God had left prayer completely up to us, we would be confined by, our things, by things like our human limits of space and time and energy. We wouldn't have the attention span for it. We'd be too forgetful, too selfish, too cold-hearted. But since God leaves the task of answering prayers to himself, he is not confined by this. Instead, he is able to do things that we could never do. Lewis concludes in this essay that in the face of difficulties or these circumstances, that prayer is not actually the weaker thing to do, but the stronger thing to do. Because whenever it does work, it works unlimited by space and time. And nothing we do is ever unlimited by space and time. And I have to think that Paul was thinking something similar whenever he was writing this letter. The prayer life that Paul wanted Timothy to embrace... The first step of Paul's command to fight the good fight and to keep false teaching out of the church, it wasn't about causing a ruckus, and it wasn't about figuring out which hills to die on. There are times and places for that, but the first step was prayer. It was contemplation. It was to reflect the ways that we honor God. So, the first step to avoid being a heretic is to embrace a quiet life of prayer, To remember that we are human beings created to be in communion with God and to reflect His image to a watching world. We should turn to Him in prayer and cast our burdens on Him because He cares for us. But the second step to avoid living like a heretic is related to living a quiet life of prayer. It's to actually let Jesus do the talking. Look at verses 5 and 6. For there is one God... And one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. As we have seen, there are good reasons to think, based on what Paul has told us, that the false teachers in Ephesus had been trying to prevent people from believing the gospel in one way or another. And this is highlighted by the fact that they're not praying for all people. And it's at this point that Paul decides to show Timothy just how ridiculous it is. To gatekeep the gospel like this. Against the backdrop of what we've just talked about, Paul commands us to pray for all people, not just because it's pleasing to God, but also because Christ is the only one that's allowed to mediate God and man. In other words, we don't get to pick and choose who receives the gospel. We don't get to choose whose sins are forgiven or who should be the subject of our prayers. We don't mediate. God and man. Only the man, Jesus Christ, does that. One commentator frames these verses as a counterpart to Paul's command to pray. He says this, building on his earlier statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul now says that Christ died for everyone in keeping with God's desire that all people be saved. Therefore, not to pray for everyone is to treat the death of Christ with contempt. I think what Paul is saying to Timothy is similar to what he says to the church in Corinth. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness stronger than human strength. The gospel, on its own merits... Is abrasive to our human nature. The gospel cheats the worldly systems of Judaism or Greek philosophy because it provides a way out of sin that we don't earn ourselves. Like Paul shows in chapter one, the law of God points out our shortcomings. It pricks us to the point that until we realize, like Paul, we are the chief of sinners. The gospel's offensive. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way, Ultimately, the gospel is offensive because the cross stands against all schemes of self-salvation. To let Jesus speak for himself is to recognize that we don't need to add to the offense of the gospel. Jesus, Jesus Christ earned eternal salvation for all who believe. And this is a free gift offered to any who profess him as Lord and confess their sins. And I think this is why Paul makes a seemingly random statement about Jesus being the only mediator between God and man. Because like those in Ephesus, we human beings don't have the right to determine who hears the gospel. It isn't our place to heap undue burdens or guilt upon unbelievers. God himself is the one who condemns their sin. The gospel message is offensive to the ungodly, and because of this, we should let the gospel do its own offending. We have to learn to let Jesus do the talking, so to speak, to show that he is the one who calls sinners to repent, and he vindicates that call through his own death on the cross. I previously mentioned that I thought Paul was writing against uh, sort of an early form of what we would later know as Gnosticism. And this is one of the places that I think we find evidence of it. At its heart, Gnosticism was sort of a mythology. Um, A central component was this idea of the pleroma. That's just a Greek word that means fullness. And the fullness was made up of all these smaller eons that were kind of like demigod-like figures who had fallen from the immaterial world, and as a result, the world was created and, and all this stuff. And my point is that the Gnostics would say that there are endless, infinite mediators between the world and God. They would say that there's a, measure, a measureless amount, that there are all these eons that could mediate between you and God, the fullness. But the God of the Bible says that there is one mediator, the man Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and dwelled among us without compromising either divinity or humanity, Whenever we choose to let Jesus do the talking, it resolves a host of issues for us. When we let Jesus do the talking, it means that we allow God himself to be responsible for salvation, that we don't try to earn it, we don't try to figure out who deserves it, and we don't try to make up a mythology to explain the world away. Instead, we leave our fate up to the one in whose hands it actually lies. When we let Jesus do the talking, it allows us to limitlessly love our neighbors. While the old adage, love the sinner, hate the sin, sounds great, it's often used as a cop out for actually having to love people. We think that in order to hate the sin, we need to be less involved in the lives of those around us. But when we realize that Jesus is the mediator between God and man, not ourselves, then we don't have to feel a pressure to say the right thing, do the right thing, act the right way, or worry about getting too close to other sin. Instead, we just need to pray and share the gospel. When we let Jesus do the talking, we stop putting our trust in ourselves, in the world around us, or in our governing authorities. We realize that in Christ, we stand before the God who controls, orders, sustains, and accomplishes all things in accordance with his wisdom and will. Now, in case I've been misunderstood in in talking about this, I don't think Paul is saying we don't play a role in salvation. Quite the opposite, actually. I think that Paul is saying that we can actually share the gospel without fear because we don't have to rely on ourselves to be perfect. When we learn to let Jesus do the talking... Let Jesus do the gatekeeping, unlike the leaders in Ephesus, then we can feel at peace calling people to repent and believe the gospel, because the one man, Jesus Christ, died for them just the same. In fact, this is this third step to avoid becoming a heretic. Remember evangelism. Look with me at verse seven. "For this, I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. And a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, you might be thinking that uh, I'm reading a little too much into this by saying this functions as a command to evangelize, but I think we need to remember that ancient ears would have heard this differently than we do today. Paul, in this verse, highlights not merely that his call was to follow Christ, but that he was commissioned to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He's continuing this theme of making the gospel known to all people by talking about the fact that Christ died not for just the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. If Paul had told us here that he was a teacher of the Jews, then this would have been unsurprising, most likely, to everyone that heard it. But the Gentiles were those who were grafted into the promise. In Acts 10, we see Peter exemplify this. He preaches the gospel message to all who believe from any nation, and we see that while Peter is still speaking, the Holy Spirit comes down, and all the circumcised among them were amazed because the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. Acts 11 asks the same question that I want us to consider today. If then God gave them the same gift that He also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? Because Jesus is the mediator for all men in all places, then it means that the gospel is no longer confined to this nationality or people. Instead, it is open to any who believe. Whereas the promise of redemption was once set aside for the Israelites as God's chosen people, Paul tells us that there is one God who will justify the circumcised and the uncircumcised by faith. As a church... We have been following the narrative of the promised seed through Genesis off and on for a while now, right? We also saw an example of how this plays out in Israel's history whenever we did a series on Obadiah just a a while back, a couple months maybe. And here, Paul shows us that all along, these stories have been about Jesus bringing the gospel to the whole world. Galatians 3.16 tells us that the promises that were spoken to Abraham and to his seed Excuse me, that the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, not to seeds in the plural, but to one, Christ. Whereas the law served as a kind of temporary mediator or guardian until Christ came, enabling us to be justified by faith. And because of this justification that we have in Christ, there is no more Jew or Greek, there's no more slave or free, male or female, because we are all one in Christ Jesus. The one who saves and serves as mediator between God and man. And then Paul says, if we are in Christ, we are Abraham's seed according to the promise. This is all to say that Paul's inclusion of the Gentiles in verse 7 is just a shorthand way to remind Timothy and the Ephesians that the gospel is available to any who want to believe. That we need to not only pray for them, but also to be heralds for this good news in the same way that Paul was. I want to begin to close out the sermon this morning by zooming back out and making sure we're seeing how this ties in with the book altogether, just so we don't miss the forest for the trees. Paul opens his letter by reiterating his command for Timothy to stay in Ephesus. He says that there's false teachings popping, popping up and that they have become false teachers because they abandon love in a pure heart. They misuse the law to justify their actions and in doing so rival the truth. Having commanded Timothy to stay, Paul then offers his testimony showing how he was a sinner who received mercy and that he's in the trenches with Timothy and advancing the gospel in spite of his sinfulness. He encourages Timothy, fight the good fight and don't become like those others who have shipwrecked their faith. But then as we've seen today, he says, here's how you don't shipwreck your faith. You need to embrace prayer You need to let Jesus talk, share the gospel with all. I don't know where you find yourself fitting into the story that's unfolding in 1 Timothy. Uh, Maybe you feel like Timothy. You feel like you need to be the change that you want to see, but you don't know how. I would encourage you to make an effort to do the things that Paul has commanded pray fervently and quietly, minimize the ways that you seek to distract or keep others from hearing the gospel. Seek out relationships that allow you to invite others into the free gift of salvation. Maybe you don't want to admit it, but you resonate with the false teachers in Ephesus. That you've been comfortable with your middle-class Christianity trying to keep those who are unlike you from hearing the truth. Maybe you've wielded Christian concepts to try to justify your sinful behavior or your lack of character. I would encourage you to please repent Before you shipwreck your faith and become a blasphemer like Hymenaeus and Alexander. There is mercy and grace for even the chiefest of sinners. We have seen this throughout this letter. And then last, maybe you see yourself in the image of Paul prior to his conversion. You are the chief of sinners, living by your own standards and your own rules. And I'm here to remind you that there is a mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ and he gave himself as a ransom for you. In Christ, there is no social status or standing. There are not good Christians or bad Christians, so you need not feel ashamed to bring all your sins to him. He loves you, and he has accomplished salvation on your behalf. If only you will believe in him and profess him as Lord. Uh, I'm going to have Raymond come pray so that I can get this microphone off and prepare to close us in song. Uh, So please join him in prayer as he comes up to close us out this morning.